Grab a copy of God's Word, if you would, and head to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we are going to be. We're going to continue our time together in Paul's letter to the church in, in Corinth. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some in the table back there. You see some in the pews in front of you. However, those ones are a little bit of different translation that I'm going to be reading from this morning. If you choose to use that hardback Bible in front of you in the pew, that's totally fine. Just understand some of the things that I'm going to be reading right now from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 might look a little bit different to you. If you want to see it word for word back there in on the table. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word too, those Bibles back there on the table are, are for you. That's our, our gift to you. Have, the co- have a copy of God's Word, and if you need a new one also, feel free to take it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Corinth, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, I at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we, endure any, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rites, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still, am I, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. 
To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but outside, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that the race in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, I don't think is an, a, a place that we typically go. Um, and when we read through this, I think I've read First Corinthians many times in my life, and I, I don't know that I've really settled down in ver- chapter 9 in the way that I did this week. This is an emotionally complex thing. In this study, when I find myself in the study preparing for a sermon, it's maybe the most emotionally taxing thing that happens throughout my week. And this week, this text in particular wrecked me. It was, it was very difficult for me to plow through it. And if you're like, why? I don't understand. That's fine. We're going to get there. But if you think back a couple weeks ago, well, like four weeks ago now, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we were processing through Paul and how he was thinking about food offered to idols or the sacrifice of idols and using uh, an argument that was constructed around love. We saw Paul tell the Corinthians that just because they had the right information and they sought to apply right information correctly, it didn't mean that their heart was right in the use of that information. And again, we think about the idea again and again over, over the course of their time in this book, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And we see that idea pop up again here in chapter 9. Paul wants the Corinthians to be motivated by love to the point that they would constrain their own rights, that they would put their rights on hold, that they would surrender them for the sake of love, for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. There was no problem with the Corinthians eating food sacrificed to idols. We saw that in chapter 8. Paul said, because there's only one God. There's only one God. Those other gods that, that those people are sacrificing food to, those are, they're not real, he says. And yet, we do not put a stumbling block in the place of a brother or sister wound their conscience when it is weak. So Paul realizes that there are those in the Corinthians' midst who are unable to properly apply the truth that God is one, that there is no God, there is no challenger. They were unable to, to actually make that connection. So rather than alienate those people, Paul tells the Corinthians to abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols. This is all in chapter 8. And now when we get to chapter 9, Paul is going to begin to talk about his own gospel ministry. These are things that that are happening. Paul is using himself as the example. We see that right away in the beginning of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He starts talking about himself. And even if we look in verse 13, that's where the transition happens. He actually uses the first person pronoun. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That verse is important when we get to verse 1. Don't read those as separate sections. Read those as one. Lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Do not have the right to do that thing, but will love constrain me? Will I put that right on hold because of, of love? Paul applies the concept to himself. And then in chapter 9, he opens it up with another issue that may cause the Corinthians to stumble, may cause some in their midst to stumble if he were to exercise what he was free to do. And the issue that Paul talks about in chapter 9 is getting paid. Getting paid for gospel ministry. What does it mean? What does it look like? Does he have the right to it? He says he's not going to get paid, but he offers the gospel free of charge. Now, when we get to a text like this, be aware that there's a very fine, delicate balance here. There's something going on here that extends beyond just the issue of will we pay a gospel minister or will we not pay a gospel minister? I'm a, if I'm an individual in the, in the church in Corinth and I'm stumbling or I'm trying to understand and apply the gospel in my life, is this a barrier? And Paul says, instead of having it become a barrier for you, I'm just going to remove it all together. Not that I don't have the right to it. I make that argument. Paul makes that argument in verses 1 through 12. That's going to be our first point in a second. But he, he makes that argument. But if he's going to remove it in order that the gospel might be effective. So, even you see it in the introduction. When we get to the end of this text, Paul is interested in not boxing as one who is beating the air. He's interested in making his gospel ministry effective amongst the Corinthians. He's interested in landing punches. And the way that he does it is through the surrender of his right. So we see three sections here in chapter 9. We're going to break it up into three sections. In verses 1 through 12, we see that Paul the rights that Paul has. What are the rights that Paul has? Particularly as it pertains to getting paid. And then, in the next section, verses, well, the second half of 12, and all the way through probably about 18, Paul's, the rights that Paul then surrenders. And then, 19 through the end of the chapter-ish, Although there's some overlap here, the result of Paul's surrender. What is it that is intended to come about because of Paul's surrendering of his rights? Now, now before we dive into this text, before we dive, like I said, there's a delicate balance here for us to, to see in this text. Because one could come to this place and look at it and say, okay, Paul is surrendering his rights, and that is necessary for, for him and for his salvation. And yet the reality of this text is that, that grace applies, and it even brings about particular rights for Paul. If Paul chose to get paid by the Corinthians, it would not have diminished his work as a gospel minister, because that, that, that work is, a, is an outflow of grace in the life of Paul. And so the balance here is to look at this text and when Paul feels constrained by love 
to not get paid by the Corinthians for gospel ministry, he is not elevating himself up the ladder or in a position of of hierarchy. But what he is doing is saying exclusively the purpose behind this is so that you may not stumble, so that you may see the gospel clearly, and so that you might believe. That's what this is about. This is not legalism on Paul's part. It is, in fact, a selling out to his gospel ministry. Before we dive in, we see the last several weeks, we've been exploring this idea of oneness over the course of, of the last few weeks and our unity in, in a merger, two churches becoming one. And this text, and so much of what we've seen in 1 Corinthians so far, promotes unity in the body. What Paul is saying here, and the way that he approaches his own ministry, is promoting unity in the body. And so part of us as a church, part of the outflow here, although maybe not directly applicable to this text, but all that we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians, and even last week when we were in John chapter 17, all of what flows up to this is, are we promoting unity in the body? And part of this, part of what's going on here in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians is that there was the potential for the Corinthians to make a mountain out of a molehill. There was a potential to make small thing into a big thing and thereby miss the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves the question going into this text, do we or are we performance-driven or gospel-driven? Again, our definition of unity, if we're being unified together as the body of Christ, are we meant to agree on everything? No, the answer is no. But are we to agree on the most important thing? Yes, the answer is yes. And so are we performance-driven or gospel-driven? The people up here playing musical instruments and singing on Sunday morning are not driven by their performance before you. They're driven by the gospel. That they are overjoyed with the reality that they get to sing the truths of Scripture with you, the congregation, on a Sunday morning. They get to make use of their gifts. We're going to get there in a couple weeks. They get to make use of their gifts to build up the body, to edify the church. Not to make a name for themselves, but to make a name for Jesus. And so are we performance-driven or are we gospel-driven? Anything that we have in this space, anything that occurs that's good and honoring to God is a grace from God. Not because of what we do, but because of what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. So, as people, as Buffalo City Church, do we hold each other to impossible standards? Do we hold ourselves to impossible standards? Saying, if you do that, you're saying performance is more important than the gospel. And I'm elevating performance above the gospel. This is why we slander. This is why we backbite. Because we've created impossible standards for other people in the context of the church. We have not elevated the gospel beyond our own standards. So, are you cruising the congregation this morning looking for people to miss the mark with the standard that you've set? Or have you been applying the gospel to your life and to theirs? Saying it is by grace that they have been saved, through faith. It is a gift of God, not of their own works, so that they may not 
boast, so that I may not boast. And Jesus performed so that we don't have to. He lived a perfect life at the cross and is given to us, and it becomes ours. So our performance and the performance of others on Sunday morning or throughout the week doesn't save you or anyone for that matter. Only the sacrifice of Jesus can do that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is not Paul performing to earn something. It's not Paul saying, look at me, I'm not going to get paid, and therefore I've earned something. It's Paul saying, look at me, I'm not going to get paid so that I don't put an obstacle in your way, so I don't prevent you from seeing and believing the truth of the gospel. So, this promotes unity in the body. Being gospel-driven, not being performance-driven. And then the question that brings us to the heart of the text this morning is, are we demanding rights or surrendering them? Are we demanding rights or surrendering them? We've seen this theme, and if you're thinking to yourself, we've got to go over this again, the answer is yes, we have to go over it again. Paul saw fit to go over it again. The Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire Paul to go over this again with the Corinthians. It is absolutely essential. Paul makes himself the example. So again, our three points this morning, the rights that Paul has, the rights that Paul surrenders, and then the result of Paul's surrender. So look at with me, verse, look with me at verse 1 through 12, half of 12. Paul asks a lot of questions here. We see a lot of question marks. These are rhetorical questions. The Corinthians have the answers to these questions. They know the answers. That's why Paul answers or asks them, and he doesn't give full-bodied answers. But for the sake of the text and for the sake of our understanding, let's answer them. Paul asks in verse 1, am I, am I not free? Okay, I'm going to put myself in the position of a Corinthian in the church, and I say, yes, you are, Paul. You are free. Am I not free? Yes, you are. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Yes, you have. He appeared to you on the road to Damascus. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Yes, Paul, we are. We heard the gospel that you preached, and we believed. We heard what you said. If others question it, Paul, we do not. We do not question that we are your workmanship in the Lord. You are our spiritual father. And then in verses 1 and 2, Paul, Paul reminds the Corinthians of his apostleship. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. They're not questioning it. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And as an apostle, Paul puts himself in the dock. He puts himself in the position of the one who's being accused to be examined. And he says, as apostles, do we not have the right to eat and drink? You do, Paul. Do we not have the right to take a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers in the Lord and Cephas? You do. Paul, Paul was not married. You do, Paul. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Barnabas, also unmarried, also rarely took financial support from the churches he served. He was known for his generosity and his encouragement. Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. It's a telegraphed name. And so the answer, yes, Paul, you and Barnabas have the right to get paid. Paul asks the question, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting the milk? 
I can't think of anyone, Paul. Not anyone that I know of. So Paul narrows down his focus then, and he begins to hone in on this issue that he doesn't want the Corinthians to stumble over. Receiving financial support as a minister of the gospel. Does Paul have the right to receive financial support as a minister of the gospel? It would seem so, but Paul continues and he appeals to Scripture. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does the, not the law say the same? It does. Paul, it does. Deuteronomy 25.4, you know it. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. What does this have to do with oxen and grain? Paul asked the question, does he not certainly speak for our sake? Is it for oxen that God is concerned? No, Paul. God isn't concerned with oxen in Deuteronomy 25.4. What Paul is saying is that you should not level unnecessary restraints against ministers of the gospel that would affect their work. Don't put a muzzle on the oxen if it would prevent them from doing the work to the best of their ability. So Paul's argument is that the inability to receive financial support as the minister of gospel has the potential to decrease the effectiveness of gospel ministry. Paul says the exact same thing to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18. It makes sense. Paul as an apostle had the right to get paid to do gospel work. Paul says that the plowmen and threshers would work to partake in the harvest. You wouldn't go to work without expectation that you'd receive your agreed-upon pay, right? Now, lest you get super uncomfortable and think that I'm about to make this about me getting paid, let me just put your mind at ease. That's not anything of what's going to happen here. This is not what this text is about. That was some really nervous laughter. (laughs) The last questions in verses 11 and 12 have an important principle buried in them. Paul asks, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. There's an important principle buried here in this argument that Paul makes. Not an unfamiliar one to us, but the idea that receiving spiritual benefit costs us something. Receiving spiritual benefit costs us something. This is something that oftentimes gets overlooked in our our churches, that when spiritual benefit comes to us, we oftentimes don't think about or process through the cost that is associated. It seems to be lost in our society. It seems to be lost in evangelicalism. And here's what I mean. If we break down our lives into sort of spheres, right? We've got a spiritual sphere, but we also have our physical, we have our emotional, we have a mental or intellectual sphere. People use financial resources to receive physical benefits. Gym memberships, I don't know how much a gym membership costs, 40, 50, 80 dollars. Weight Watchers, just healthy food options. Increase your grocery budget at the grocery store. Those things give you physical benefits. However, we don't really oftentimes bat an eye when they hit our budget. And people use financial resources to receive intellectual benefits, post-secondary education. That's an incredibly expensive thing. 
or job training, books to learn about an interesting topic, or just internet access so that you can Google something. There's an intellectual benefit that costs you something financially. People use financial resources to receive emotional benefits. Counseling in the time of grief. Or something as simple as a Netflix account to watch The Office for the hundredth time to laugh at the end of a day. Coffee with a friend to work through a tough situation and how to deal with it emotionally. I would venture that most of you are investing at least in one of those areas that I, that I said. But how much do we invest in spiritual benefits? Receiving spiritual benefit costs something. It costs something. Just like physical and intellectual and emotional, it costs something. And churches in our society regularly die because people feel like they are entitled to spiritual benefits that the church gives at no cost to them. They show up Sunday morning, pop $10 in the basket, walk out. If the church is actively benefiting you spiritually, it deserves financial support. That's the principle here. Netflix automatically deducts $12.99 from your account every month. The church isn't a subscription service, like 80% of our money spent in our world. The local church doesn't have a subscription cost, but it offers a benefit. Friends, it offers a benefit that will last much longer than the Great British Baking Show. So Paul is a minister of the gospel. Paul wants to emphasize that he has the right to receive financial support because the Corinthians are benefiting greatly from his gospel ministry. But then, strangely enough, Paul turns the corner in the second half of 12, and we see, nevertheless, nevertheless, I've made the argument, I've made the argument that I have the right to come to you and ask for financial support from you. But nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. If the reception of financial support by Paul for the Corinthians would create an obstacle, which we are led to believe that it would, Paul was willing to set it aside. I'll figure it out in some other way. He, instead of demanding the right to financial support, he surrenders it for the sake of the gospel. In verse 12, we have not made use of this right. And then in verse 15, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's not saying, I want you to feel bad for me and send you my, so that you'll send me your money. What he's saying is, the gospel is so important. It's so valuable. It cannot, absolutely, with no question, cannot be hindered by anything or any right that I, as a mere man, would have. So Paul had every right to be supported financially by the Corinthians, but he chooses not to be. And in verse 14, he says that the one who preaches the gospel vocationally should be compensated, but he's not going to do it for the sake of the gospel. Now, 
We've explored this idea in 1 Corinthians already, so we're not going to linger here, but we must ask ourselves individually and as a church, what are we holding on to that we need to release? What are we holding on to that we need to release in order that we love one another well? What are you holding on to that you need to release in order to love one another well? Our standard is love, and love must at times prevent us from demanding our rights. That's what Paul is saying. Love at times must prevent us from demanding our rights in order that people might see and savor, love and desire, have their affection stirred and grow for the person of Jesus Christ. You are free to assess your ability to buy a car this week and buy it, but love would love constrain that decision. Would you lead someone to jealousy or bitterness? That's not an invitation to foster bitterness against someone who's financially more well-off than you. But it is a question for those who would use resources without ever thinking about your, anyone but yourself or your immediate family. You're free to take a vacation, but would love constrain that decision. If someone you know in the body of Christ is hurting or going through difficulty, would it be wise? to decide to not put hundreds of miles between you and that person. Men, you're free to go watch March Madness with the guys. But would love constrain that decision? Your wife says yes, but maybe some intentional time with her, tending to her, praying with her, encouraging her as needed, albeit not demanded. Would love limit your basketball viewing? You are free to work overtime at work this week, but would love constrain that decision. If your family is suffering, if your time in God's word is suffering, if you're unable to be present in the life of the local church, would you allow love to limit your overtime at work? You're free to post silly things that your kids do on social media, but would love constrain that decision? You're free to be entertained, but would love constrain that decision? You're free to drink what you'd like, but would love constrain that decision. You're free to shop online at 1 a.m., but would love constrain that decision. What freedom do we have in our lives that we are currently exercising that needs to be surrendered for the sake of love? For Paul, it was the right to receive financial support. Love constrained him, and he surrendered his right. And that leads us to the results of Paul's surrender. Look at verse 19. We're going to all the way through the end of the chapter. Again, Paul has one thing in mind. Removing, reducing barriers to proclaiming the gospel in the most effective way possible. Look at the second half of verse 12. Back up the page. But we endure anything. Let that sink in. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What's our limit? What's our limit on what we would endure in putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? So, reducing barriers to proclaim the gospel in the most effective way. Paul would gladly endure any hardship 
and reduce his gospel witness by exercising a right. He says in verse 18 that he is not making full use of his rights. And then in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now, servant here has some weight. This word has some weight. There are few words in the New Testament that are translated servant. This is the most extreme one. It's not like, that guy's such a servant, he brought us donuts. That's not what this is saying. It's more like that guy has submitted his whole life to being a benefit to others. His entire life is in complete sacrificial service to others. For though I am free from all, I have made myself completely subject to all. That's what Paul is saying. Literally, literally translated means be enslaved. Paul uses his freedom to make himself subject to others so that they might hear the gospel message. And look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. This is not a message for a locker room wall. Or this is not just for athletes. To be in it to win it requires sacrifice. It requires you to remove obstacles and barriers that would slow you down. It requires subjecting yourself, disciplining yourself. It requires self-control. Waking up early before the sun comes up to run. Personally, I'm not into that. Going to bed early to replenish your energy. This is what athletes must do. Eating properly. Sacrificing things that you used to indulge in. Athletes exercise self-control. But even their reward is temporary, Paul says. The wreath is perishable. It will go away. The trophy on your bookshelf in your man cave is going to burn up and blow away. Paul subjects himself to self-control, sacrifice, discipline. He gives up his rights. He gives up everything for the sake of the gospel because the results of belief in the gospel is an eternity spent in the presence of God, an imperishable reward. And so Paul is all about landing punches, not swinging at the air, being effective in the task that he has been called to, the mission that he's been given. what would potentially diminish Paul's gospel witness? What would be a barrier to others hearing the gospel from Paul and responding? He believed that if he demanded his rights in this area of financial support, he would construct such a barrier that less people would hear the truth of the gospel. So he removes the obstacle and he foregoes his right to receive financial support. For the sake of the gospel, Paul was willing to do anything and subject himself to anyone. I don't know about you, but that's terribly convicting. When I opened up by saying that this this generated an emotional response in me that made me so frustrated with the way that I demand my rights, the way that I think about the things that I'm entitled to, and the way that I don't even think about so many things that I do throughout the course of my day that might be putting obstacles or barriers in the way of people believing the truth of the gospel. 
How many things am I engaged in in my life on a regular basis that hurts the gospel witness that I could potentially have? Am I not that willing to surrender rights for the sake of the gospel? My heart is holding on to a lot of things. I don't even know what it's holding on to. And so, our prayer this week as a church be that God would reveal those things that are constructing unhelpful barriers in our gospel witness. Not so that we would have a performance argument before the world but so that we would make Jesus the most beautiful thing. Not so that we would come before other people and say, look at all that I have, but say, look at what I don't. And yet God, being rich in mercy, with the love with which he loved us, he made a way for us in Christ Jesus. Not because of me and because of all that I am or all that I've done, but because all that he is and all that he's done. And so we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions in conclusion this morning as we prepare to go to the Lord's table together. The first is this. We've asked this question several times already. But just to drive it home, what am I clinging to that may be harming my gospel proclamation, my gospel witness? Paul gave up compensation for his work. Even though he certainly had a right to it. The proper application of this text is not to give up compensation for your work. The proper application of this text is to consider what you're holding on to and what barriers it might be constructing. Paul had the right to receive financial support as a minister of the gospel. Or here's another way that maybe we could answer this, or ask this question. What am I taking where I should be relinquishing? Where am I taking where I should be relinquishing? Maybe you've worked hard for many years and it's finally you time. You hit retirement. You see lots of young families here, but you paid your dues. You raised your kids. They moved on. You're not going to sacrifice precious time. But Paul says, yeah, that's all true. You don't have to. But think about how much impact you could have in helping young people apply the gospel if you gave up that right. And maybe you've been offered a promotion at work and you're the most qualified person for that role. You know it's true. You're the most qualified person for the role. But maybe you've been sharing the gospel with a coworker who would also fit the role, albeit not as well as you, but would fit that role. And her identity is in her work and would really struggle to be open to future gospel conversations if you got the job over her. Now hold up, you say. Should I be thinking about my family first? And the answer is yes, but would your family not understand if you made your five-year plan a 10-year plan? And remove an obstacle for your coworker to hear the gospel. Where am I taking where I should be relinquishing for the sake of the gospel? No area of your life is off limits. That's what Paul shows us. No area of our lives is off limits. 
I would challenge you, really pray, Lord, am I clinging to something that is preventing me from being effective in my gospel witness? The Lord Jesus condescended to earth. He took on flesh. He took on poverty when he was dwelling in eternal riches. And yet he came to earth and gave up everything. He relinquished everything. Paul's example here, giving up his compensation, is a small and insignificant comparison to what Jesus came up, gave up to come to earth. That's buried here, friends. It's important for us to recognize. The other thing I would ask this morning is, are you really investing in the spiritual? And like last week, we talked about the local church and it's existing to equip you for the work of ministry. Not to do the work of ministry for you, but all the saints, Paul says in Ephesians 4, are to be equipped for the work of ministry. And so are we investing time and treasure and talents? Are we investing in the spiritual benefit? Time in God's word, helping others know God through it. Investing financial resources so that we can effectively be equipped for the work of ministry. Investing talents to make much of Jesus and not make much of you or just cash in on a paycheck. Spiritual benefit costs something. It's not just infused into us. But we must discipline ourselves and exercise self-control in the way that Paul says that he exercises self-control in all things. We must realize that eternity is a long time. We see through the thin returns that the world offers and start thinking about making some internal investments. Now, you wouldn't wait until five years out from retirement to start saving for retirement. Why are we waiting until we're on death's door to begin investing in eternity? So we move our minds to the Lord's table. This is something that we do together regularly as the body of Christ. We come together and we drink the juice and prepare ourselves for the recognition that Jesus washed us clean with his blood. He made us right with God because of the forgiveness of sins. It's here this morning pictured. The gospel is here. Or a broken body. A perfect body. Not corrupted by sin. Broken on our behalf. His perfect obedience then granted to you at the cross. And so we're here this morning. This is why we come and gather together to see and to savor Jesus Christ, to drink the juice and understand that we are forgiven, to receive and break the bread and to eat the bread and understand that we are made right with the Holy God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is important for us this morning. This is a picture of the gospel. This is not a rite or a ritual. It's not imparting anything to you beyond the benefit of seeing and savoring what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's not a mystical encounter. It is the recognition that Jesus freely sacrificed himself for us. So this morning I'm going to invite you. Worship team will come up and play, pray, and pray, and play, and I'll pray. But I'll invite you to come forward to take the elements. Just head back to your seat, partake there. Spend some time in quiet reflection. 
If this morning none of this makes sense, if you're not in Christ, if you're not sure how to be made right with God, this is not something for you. But I would love to talk with you about how you can be made right with God. Anyone up here on the platform, Andrew who read scripture, John who's over here, we can all talk with you about what it means to have right relationship restored with God in Christ Jesus and to properly picture this. But if you are in Christ, I invite you to come to participate. If there are kids in here, parents, exercise discretion for your kids. If your kids have made a profession of faith in Christ Jesus, by all means, invite them to participate with you. But if not, use it as an opportunity. Use it as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. So I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up. And when your heart is prepared, come forward, grab the elements, head back to your seat, and partake there.